If you would turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 21, we'll be looking at verses 5 to 19. I want to take a moment and to thank uh, Carrie and Shannon DePew for their service, uh, the Upward Ministry. We compl- completed that yesterday. And for those of you that were involved in this, you know the time uh, that was required for them to do what they did up here every night, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday nights uh, for three and a half, for four hours, and then all day on Saturdays. And they did that for uh, over eight weeks. So uh, when you have an opportunity, thank the DePews. And then there were many of you who were very involved in the upward ministry And we thank you as well because uh, it is a crucial ministry. It's an opportunity for us to reach people who are not uh, typically uh, in a local church. And so we we thank you for that. And again, thank you for putting on such a remarkable upward season. It was a great year. And we thank you for that. Um, Let's pray and then we'll get into our text. Lord, thank you for the people of God. We thank you that we have such a a strong nucleus this morning, even on a a tough weather day. We pray it would be worth our while as we hear the very word of our Christ. We pray that you would teach us, instruct us today, and sober us where we need to be sobered. There's a time for that, and it may be this text this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past Monday... Seven Christians in Benghazi uh, were taken from their homes by armed men who were going door to door looking for Christians. And then they were killed in execution style on a beach in Benghazi. Uh, Last Friday, nine days ago in North Korea, an Australian missionary was detained by the North Koreans for passing out gospel tracts. He's now the second one that is detained there. Another man there who is a, an American missionary, K- Kenneth Bay, is serving the second year of a 15-year prison sentence for having a Bible. Uh, maybe you heard about Pastor Lawrence Kadeem, who one month ago today in Mombasa, Kenya, was murdered at his church by Muslims because he preached the gospel too close to a mosque, and he was murdered. In fact, several pastors have been murdered in that region in recent times, and many churches have been attacked. The fact is, Christians uh, in other places in the world today live in situations like that. That is their normal, severe persecution. And though this sounds very shocking to us uh, who live in Disney World, it shouldn't be. Um, Jesus is just days out in this text from the most severe and most heinous persecution in the history of the world, the persecution and the execution of the Son of God. And in this text, he's going to warn his disciples um, that until he returns, until the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, persecution and trial and difficulty will be the norm. And as for us, uh, we live in a culture that is increasingly antagonistic to the gospel. If you don't see that, you don't read the headlines. Gratefully, no one right now is presently being imprisoned or put to death for converting to Christ or for evangelizing the gospel. 
but we are experiencing an increase in antagonism. On Wednesday, uh, the Arizona governor vetoed a bill, Bill 1062, that offered um, religious liberty protection for businesses in Arizona. Now, uh, what many Christians are hearing are the, the feedback and the perspective of liberal media. But these businesses are not refusing uh, same-sex couples who come in and desire to buy a cake, for instance, at a floor or in, in a bakery. What this uh, bill was to protect was them having to go to a wedding and cater a wedding. And, and so this bill was vetoed in part because the NFL, the National Football League, threatened to pull the Super Bowl in Arizona in the year 2015. And the Apple Corporation threatened to pull out all of their stores in Arizona if that bill was not vetoed. Cases have been popping up across the country where individuals have declined to, to bake cakes and um, offer flowers and photography at same-sex weddings. In fact, uh, maybe you heard about the photographer in New Mexico. Uh, she refused to photograph a same-sex wedding and she was charged, she was penalized $7,000. We've seen it in, in Washington State with a florist. We've seen it in Colorado. We've seen it in other places with bakeries who refuse to accommodate these same-sex weddings. And the government has punished them as a result. And then there's the Christian adoption uh, agencies in Massachusetts and Illinois and Washington, D.C., who have basically stopped rendering services because they believe, rightfully, that a, a child who is adopted should be adopted only by a man and a woman who are married, uh, heterosexual marriage. And so they've had to stop rendering services because of the restraints that have been placed upon them. And so the first phase of persecution, something we've not seen here, okay? But the first phase of persecution is underway here. And it's hitting with this increasing loss of religious liberty. But don't think it's not uh, persecution because it's a continuum. Uh, on one end of the continuum, you may have insult. On the other end of the continuum, you may have injury. We're somewhere between insult and injury right now, but it's the same continuum, okay? And it's only going to proceed from bad to worse. And our text today tells us not only should we expect it, we should see it as an opportunity, not as an obstacle. And that's what Christians need to hear. We should see it as an opportunity, not an obstacle. It doesn't mean we welcome it. It doesn't mean we pray for it. You don't pray for persecution because persecution is sin against God. But even when persecution comes in the wise providence of God and due to the fact that we have a king, Jesus Christ, who has triumphed over the grave and has triumphed over the devil and has triumphed over sin and who is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning, even in these days, we should see them as opportunities and not obstacles. Indeed, nothing is going to happen in this culture, or any culture for that matter, that does not benefit the kingdom of God. We need to remember that. God is on his throne. 
Nothing will thwart the purposes of God. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And we need to be reminded of that as we look at this text today. Now, this text is famously known as the Olivet Discourse. All right. It's the final discourse, the final speech, the final sermon, if you will, that Jesus is going to give before he goes to the cross. Now, we'll read some more words that he will share with his disciples. But as far as a full-fledged speech, this is the final one. Now, Luke makes no connection to the Olivet, uh, Mount Olivet where he gives this speech. But Mark in Mark 13 and Matthew in Matthew 24 does. So this is the Olivet Discourse. And in particular, it deals with the destruction of Jerusalem. It deals with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But that event is going to be used by Jesus. And we're going to see that later on next week. That event is going to be used by Jesus as a pattern, a a kind of a type, uh, an index finger, if you will, that points to the ultimate destruction that's going to come, not just in a city, but worldwide in the day of judgment when Christ returns and consummates the new heaven and new earth. And so Jesus, at this point, is concerned with how his disciples will respond, how his disciples will live in his absence upon his ascension to the Father. How will they live until the great day? And so these are crucial words for us. And never have they been more important to a 21st century American audience than than what we see today. Now, this is the final address before the cross, as I said. And so this should cause us to pause and to listen. These are very important words. We're going to look at it over the next three weeks. Today, next week, and the following week. We break it down that way because it's so important to us. Now, it begins with the setting. In verses 5 and 6, we see the setting. He's through with his controversies at this point with the religious leaders. He's cleansed out the temple because of the idolatry there. And now he is speaking to his disciples. And it says, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here. One stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now. Keep in mind, Solomon's temple was destroyed. Sometimes people get confused here, so let me teach you a moment. Solomon's temple was built and was destroyed in 586, 587. Historians kind of go back and forth there. um, B.C. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in and just absolutely razed the place, destroyed it, okay? And so Judah, because of their idolatry, goes into captivity for 70 years. And then in 539 B.C., you have uh, Cyrus, the king of Mede-Persians, signs a decree. We read about that in Ezra 1. It says, the spirit of the Lord stirred the heart of the king. Now, this is a pagan king, but God is sovereign even over the hearts of pagan kings, okay? We need to remember that today as well. 
Uh, He stirs the heart of this king and he signs this decree to allow the Jews to go back to their homeland and rebuild their temple, rebuild their city. And so Zerubbabel leads 50,000 Jews back to the homeland to rebuild the temple. By 536 B.C., uh, they've got the, the foundation of the temple built. But guess what happened? Persecution. All right? When you're, when you're pursuing the, the purposes of God, there will always be conflict and warfare. So if you're not experiencing it, maybe you're not pursuing the purposes of God in your life. There's always going to be warfare when you're pursuing God's kingdom purposes. And so this temple lie in ruins for 16 years. They reasoned if it's dangerous or it's difficult, this must not be the time. And so they allowed the temple to remain in ruins for 16 years. And then God raises up Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, to speak rebuke into their lives. And so in 520 B.C., they begin to rebuild the temple. And by 515 B.C., the entire temple had been built on the very site of Solomon's temple. But it was smaller. It wasn't as beautiful And it certainly lacked the glory of Solomon's temple. We read that in Haggai chapter 2. Then Herod comes along, Herod the Great. Now, he was not great because he was a great man of God. He was great because of his talents, his power, his influence. And he loved building projects. So in 20 B.C., he takes that temple that is so small and inglorious and he makes it something remarkable. He builds something that's two times the size of Solomon's temple. In fact, it was 400 yards by 500 yards. You could fit 12 football fields inside uh, this, the temple walls. In certain places, it was 15 stories high. It was a remarkable temple. Josephus says, who is Josephus? He's the first century uh, Jewish historian who was the eyewitness of uh, Rome ransacking uh, Jerusalem. Here's what he said about that temple. It was 35 acres. He said the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with many plates of gold to approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. That's how glorious that temple was, how beautiful it was. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. And Jesus is discerning his disciples' enthrallment with this physical structure. Okay? And so he takes... The opportunity to remind them this temple has a termination date. It has a very short shelf life. That's an implication for us, isn't it? All the things that we're so enthralled with in the created order, they have a shelf life. They have a termination date. They're transient, okay? They're not ultimate reality. And he reminds them of that. And like a system of sales, you know, that have kind of gone rogue, that have become malignant, the temple had forsaken its intended, intended purpose. We saw that when he cleansed the temple, didn't we? And so it had to be eradicated. The temple had to be destroyed under the judgment of God. And that should remind us, what is the new covenant temple? The new covenant temple is the local church. When a church loses sight of who it is. Remember, a church is not a community center. All right? It is not a community sitter. It is an organism for the Great Commission. The church's mission is the Great Commission. There are other missions that other organisms can do, 
But the church's mission is the Great Commission. The temple had, the people of the temple had forgotten their mission. And many times churches forget their mission. And so this is a word to us. In fact, Jesus' words were tragically fulfilled, weren't they? They were tragically fulfilled when Titus, the Roman general, came in and completely destroyed the city. In fact, what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD would make 9-11 fit inside of a bottle in comparison. 9-11 is nothing to what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD. We'll be looking more at that over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Josephus writes that uh, Titus ordered the whole city and the temple to be raised are burned to the ground. And soldiers were pulling stones apart in an attempt to reclaim the melted gold for themselves. It was a bad time. Now think about this. Jesus is speaking about the place where God dwells with his people. All right, The temple was where God communed with his people. It's where the glory cloud was manifest in the Holy of Holies. Okay? The temple, it was where atonement was made for sin. Now the temple is going to be destroyed. Does that mean the worship of God is going to be destroyed as well? Does that mean the end of worship? No. Because the purpose of the temple has been fulfilled. Where does God commune with man today? In a person, the man Jesus Christ. Where is atonement made with God in a person, the man Jesus Christ? In fact, one of the purposes of the temple was to foster man, um, messianic hopes until the Messiah would come. Malachi 3 says, in the day of the Lord, the Lord would come to his temple. That's why Anna and, and you have others um, who are Simeon sitting there waiting for the consolation of the Lord in the temple. Why? Because the temple was where the Lord would come in that day. And so all the purposes of the temple have been fulfilled in Jesus. And as a result, they were misusing the temple for their idolatrous purposes. And as a result, judgment must come. And that's what Jesus is warning of right here. Judgment on the temple, judgment on Jerusalem in the upcoming years, which we know to be 70 AD. Now, what are the signs? Now, what are the signs um, that lead up to that day? Um, we see that in verses 7 to 11. Notice with me in verse 7. It says, And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, just a word. Um, the you that we read about here, when he speaks to you, the you in the pew is not the you in the text. That's a very important principle. The you in the pew, so don't be too quickly to identify yourself with the you in this particular passage. This speaks to a unique audience at a unique time about a unique event. The fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, was an event in history. And that is the event that Jesus speaks to directly. But having said that, and you're wondering, what does this got to do with me? The judgment on Israel, or Jerusalem, 
The judgment on the temple is a prototype of the last day. It's kind of like a dress rehearsal, okay, before a play. The dress rehearsal looks like the real thing, but it's not the real thing, okay? It points us to the real thing, but it's not the real thing. Because for the Jews, the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple would have been considered the last day. Where would they have gotten that from? Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 to 8. It would have been considered the last day. But it's also a template, a a finger, if you will, an index finger pointing to a greater judgment to come. What happens in this city, all right, in time and space, when God judges, is going to happen universally when Christ returns as the judge, okay? And so this has all the relevance in the world to us, even though he's speaking directly to a particular people. The end of the world is always in the background. In fact, I can prove my point if you look in verse 26 that we'll look at next week. He speaks of the fact people fainting with fear and with foreboding for what is coming on the world. Okay? What happens in Jerusalem is going to come on the entire world when Christ returns. And so this has um, all the application for us. In other words... Most prophecies in the Bible, all right, most prophecies in the Bible have more than one fulfillment. There's an initial fulfillment and then there's an ultimate fulfillment. Let me give you a couple of examples. God tells Abraham that through your seed, the nations will be blessed. What did we see a few weeks ago in Genesis? Jacob, the seed of Abraham, is blessing Pharaoh, all right? So that, that's an initial fulfillment of that prophecy. That's not the ultimate fulfillment. Paul tells us the ultimate fulfillment is Galatians 3.16. Jesus is the seed of Abraham who will bless the nations. All right? Or curse the nations. God tells David that your son will build my temple. Well, who built the temple? Solomon built the temple. But we also know that's not the ultimate fulfillment of that promise because Jesus the son of David, is going to be the one who ultimately builds the temple, which I believe to be the new heavens and the new earth, the temple city, if you will. And this prophecy is no exception to that. He is speaking to a particular time, a particular place, but there is something more ultimate uh, in mind. And so we have to think in terms of both. We have to look at it with, with two sets of eyes. What does he mean to those original people And how does it impact the world in the last day? Well, coming back to those those signs, the first signs we're going to see are these false claims, these false messiahs. Look in verse 8. He says, See that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Well, I don't have to tell you, That that has happened time and time again in history. We even read about it in Acts chapter 5. Theodos, uh, uh, Josephus tells us that Theodos claimed to be able to part the Jordan River. And many were led astray, he says, as a result of this man. You read about him in Acts. In fact, you could say Acts is a commentary on this passage. Everything you read about here, you see... In the gospel of Acts. Except the destruction of the temple. Why? Because Acts was written before 70 AD. 
as these gospels were as well. Uh, you think about this long line of false messiahs. Um, there was a man in the 17th century named Sabbatai. Sabbatai led thousands of Jews astray, claiming to be the Messiah, and so they worshipped him. And then we've already, we've seen in our own days men like uh, Koresh, David Koresh, uh, Jim Jones. Uh, that's a horrible uh, story that happened in Guyana. Even people like Charles Manson who claim to be the Messiah. And then on the other end, you have people who want to predict the date of Jesus' return. I've always found that interesting because the Bible doesn't predict it. All right? Jesus, that is not Jesus' burden, so why should it be our burden? We know he's returning. But nowhere in the Bible does it tell us when he's going to return. It gives us signs. It gives us birth pains. But it does not tell us when. 1988, this pamphlet came out. 88 reasons Jesus will return in 88. Guess what? They were giving those away in 1989. Um, And so that is not the burden of Scripture. So why should it be our burden? If we would just major in the burdens of Scripture, we'd be much better off. Okay? And so Jesus is warning about this. Then we also see this social chaos that's going to come. Verses 9 and 10. He says, And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid or do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, Nations will rise against nation and kingdom." Against kingdom. Now, why would Jesus say, be not terrified? By the way, um, a man named Lloyd Ogilvy wrote a book where he points out that there are 365 fear nots or be not afraid or be not terrified in the scripture. And his whole argument was there's one for every day of the year. Uh, why would we need, this is one of the most Uh, important commands Jesus gave. Be not fearful, be not afraid, be not terrified. Why would we need that? Why would the disciples need that? Well, because in a sin-broken world, that is our tendency, isn't it? And he says, be not terrified. Uh, You have in 40 AD, for instance, uh, Caligula, the Roman um, emperor of that time who tried to establish and set up a, a statue of himself in the temple. All right? Well, that didn't go down well with the believers, right? And then you've got the insurrection of the Jews in 66 AD that led to the utter destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus says, be not afraid. And then yesterday, um, which is just one more example of many, many examples over the course of history. The Russian parliament approved Vladimir Putin's request uh, to invade Um, The Ukraine, despite a warning by our own president that he did not heed. Our president said there's going to be cost. I'm not sure that he respects our president. And Jesus says, with all this, be not afraid. Why? Not so. He's not saying bury your head in the sand. He's not saying look through life with rose colored glasses. He's not saying, be like Pollyanna. Haven't you read the book about Pollyanna? You need to be more like Pollyanna. No. What he's saying is, all these wars, all these tumults that are happening do not define reality. Reality is going to be defined by what I accomplish 
in just a couple of days. When I go to the cross and I take the judgment of God on sin and I'm raised from the grave crushing the serpent's head. That's what defines reality. All the things you see around you do not define reality. It's all a charade. All these kings and presidents who think they're in power. Proverbs 21, the king's heart's in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And then we see of natural disasters, verse 11. There will be great earthquakes. We have some 20 major earthquakes, I think, per year now. uh, And 20 minor earthquakes. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Um, The historian Tacitus, a very important church historian, or he really wasn't a church historian, he he was not a believer. He documented major earthquakes uh, leading up to 70 A.D. in Phrygia and, and Laodicea and Antioch. And there were famines during the, the reign of Claudius around 50 A.D. And of course, Jesus' prophecy, again, is not here given to us to provoke speculation so that you have a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in another and you come to terms when Jesus is going to return. He didn't even know when he was going to return. And we are speculating about it. It's the height of foolishness. He who sits in the heavens laughs, okay? What he's doing here, he's giving us this reality, this temporal reality, so that we will remain steadfast and immovable and not be shocked when it happens. After all, all these wars and earthquakes and and all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. And these calamities do not thwart the kingdom of God. They do not thwart the sovereign king. And in fact, we often see today, when these calamities happen, it opens up doors for the gospel. Ask Chris Crop. That's why the Southern Baptist Disaster Relief uh, goes into these places. Places you would never have the opportunity to share the gospel. And because of these calamities, the door is opened. We see this worldwide, by the way. Training in Richmond on Saturday. Get credentialed so you can go into these places. None of these things are going to thwart the purposes of God. In the ironic and wise providence of God, they open up doors for ministry. As Luther said, the devil is God's devil. All right? God is sovereign. He is in control and he is good. We also see the stress that's going to come in that day. Remember, what's happening in the first century is just a paradigm of something we're going to see played out time and time again. So what we see here, speaking about a specific event, a specific place in time, is something we're going to see played out many generations, many generations in church history, including our own. In verses 12 to 17, we see the stress, the persecution. Look in verse 12. He says, but there before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you. Uh, We'll come back to that verb, delivering you. Uh, It's used 11 times in Luke to refer to Jesus being delivered over. We're just experiencing the sufferings of Christ, okay? Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors. Notice, for my name's sake, for my name's sake. Pursuit and arrest will be the experience of the disciples. Acts is going to spell out the persecution of the early church. 
Do you know of the original 12 disciples, 10 of them were martyred? 10. Um, And the two that weren't, John, who was exiled to an island, and he died there on that island, and Judas, who wasn't a true believer. He went out from us, but he did not belong to us. For if he had belonged to us, he would remain with us. But his going showed that he never belonged to us. We read that this morning in 1 John 2. Ten of the twelve were martyred. They lost their lives. They were convinced of something. What were they convinced of? That Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, who had been raised from the grave. And he is promising this. He says, these things will happen. And Josephus writes in painful detail of the brutality that was shown by the Romans leading up to Jerusalem's fall. And let me give you a very interesting stat. This is not some... um, Something I pulled off the internet. This is just a fact. More Christians died for their faith in the 20th century. All right. Worldwide than all the centuries combined before. In the 20th century. We're just deluded here. We, We live in Disney World. Well, guess what? Disney World is closing its doors very fast here. And so we need to be aware of what's going on on the worldwide scene. We need to be praying for the persecuted church because it's coming. Jesus' point is to rid believers that this is their best life now. All right? You write a book called Best Life Now, you're going to sell millions of copies. The problem with that book is it's so far into what the Bible says. It's pure rank heresy. He is seeking to rid us of utopian fantasies and to bring us back to reality. Adversity is not an aberration. It's the norm in a fallen world. And that's why we need to live with a preparation and not a destination mentality. But even in that, in the wise providence of God, notice verse 13. This will be your opportunity. Don't you love that? This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now, why would Jesus say that? Well, it's going to be your opportunity. But more importantly, it reminds us he's in, he's in charge. He's, he's sovereign. These things are not going to thwart the purposes of God. He says these things will be your opportunity. Surfing, uh, suffering will not be without purpose. Persecution will allow believers unprecedented opportunity. I know that to be a fact, having been overseas several times now persecution allows you opportunities that you don't have in peacetime because people are reminded every day that we're at war okay Uh, why do you feel like you need god when you have everything you have health and wealth and you have netflix you don't need god persecution reminds you things are not right things are not well i need a messiah i need a savior And again, we see this in Acts. We never see the apostles at a loss of words. When they get arrested, when they get beaten, they're never at a loss of words. And it closes the mouths of those who speak and persecute them. And this should encourage us. It should encourage us because our culture is drifting away from absolute norms, from gospel truth. It's getting darker and it's getting darker. And instead of focusing on the fact that it's getting darker, we should focus on what Jesus has said when he says the harvest is plenty. The harvest is plenty. 
This is an opportunity. It's not an obstacle. The fact is, the more hatred a culture, a country, a society has for Jesus, the purer the church is there. Let me repeat that. The more hatred, the more animosity that a country, a society has for Jesus, the purer the church is there. Now, why would I say that? Because when we live in peacetime, everybody's a Christian. It's the cultural thing to do. I can take you to Alabama and it's filled with cultural Christianity. I think one of the most important things preachers need to do there is evangelize the church. All right? But when the hammer falls, those lukewarm kind of, you know, Jesus is my fire insurance Christians, you'll think the rapture happened. They will have nothing to do with Jesus. They're not going to have anything to do with the local church. Go to China where they're, where they're, there's the underground church. You have, you have pastors there. You know what they do in a seminary there? They teach pastors how to jump out of second floor windows with their high, uh, hands tied behind their back. That's what they're experiencing in other places. And we kind of yawn and come to church. Persecution is good for us. We don't pray for it, but it's good for us. Now notice he adds in verse 14. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This is not a, a mandate for Sunday school teachers and preachers to stop studying. Oh my goodness. Um, this is spoken to apostles who have direct inspiration by the Holy Spirit who will write the very word of God. The you in the text is not the you in the pew. Okay? So remember that. That is what we need to remember. And yet... It does apply to us in a general way. It applies to us in a general way in this sense. In times of opposition, okay, the Holy Spirit will illumine His people and give them the words they need to say at that moment on the spot. The problem is we don't believe that. And that's why we keep our mouths shut. We don't believe it, and so we just remain silent when God provides those opportunities. And indeed, those opportunities are going to come. Notice verse 16 and 17. You will be delivered up. There's that verb. It's the verb used 11 times to refer to Jesus being delivered up by the authorities for the cross. We experience the the very sufferings of Christ, don't we, as believers? You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives, he's not, he's, say, he's not saying that's going to happen to everyone. He's just saying this is going to be a norm, a new normal, if you will, in a fallen world. Where, where God is giving a culture over. And some of you will be put to death. I don't like that any more than you do. I don't like reading that. I'm a, I'm a dad. I'm a, I'm a husband. Okay? And being a dad and a husband makes you a coward. Uh, you don't you you, you want to be there for your family, okay? Um, but stress and persecution is going to come. It's going to come from family. It's going to come from friends. In fact, just in a day or two, Jesus is going to be delivered over by who? One of his twelve, Judas. Indeed, Jesus is not promising physical 
Victory. Martyrdom will come. It's coming today. It's happening in other places of the world. And I don't mean to be a doomsdayer. I'm just telling you what the Olivet Discourse says to us. Martyrdom will come for some. This is a warning of what has been called, let me give you a Latin phrase, but it's used often, odium fide. Odium meaning odious. Fide meaning faith. Hatred of the faith. Do you think our culture hates the Christian faith? They hate it worse than they hate Islam. Okay? They hate it worse than they hate New Age religion. Okay? And Hinduism. Odium fide. Hatred of the faith. Jesus and his followers are odious to a culture that's turned their back on God. John tells us in 1 John 3, don't be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. Okay? That is the promise. And Jesus is saying none of this will be an indication that I'm not ruling. In fact, it's just proof that my words are sure. My words are true. Do you realize that when he says these words, these things haven't happened yet? And in fact, that's one of the great proofs that Luke was written early. Because if it had been written after 70 AD, trust me, the end of the book would have had something about the destruction of Jerusalem. It was a catastrophic time. Nothing is mentioned. The book of Acts would have said something about the the destruction of Jerusalem. Catastrophic time. Nothing is mentioned. Luke and Acts were written early. Matthew says nothing about the destruction of of Jerusalem. Mark says nothing about the destruction of Jerusalem. John says nothing about the destruction of Jerusalem. Yes, they prophesy it, but they don't say that it's happened because they were written early. But we can be assured that these things are true. And young people especially, let me just speak to you a moment. And I say this to my children, I've told my children this. And as a dad, it makes me, I'm more concerned for my children than I am my own well-being, okay? Um, But it's going to hit for children in two areas. The areas of truth and the areas of morality. If you leave home and you affirm absolute truth, you will be deemed intolerant. You'll be deemed a backwoods, uneducated, unenlightened person. Okay, when you say there is a truth, there is a there is an external truth that we must abide by and and bow to. And then in the area of morality, if you say there are moral norms that we must abide to or abide by, including marriage and sexuality, you will be considered a hater. You will be considered intolerant. Okay, and so Jesus is telling us these things are going to happen. But then he closes this section out with some security for us. I have really sounded very pessimistic today, haven't I? My goodness, I hate that. Forgive me. The security is found in verse 18. And it may not be what you think, but it's the greatest security we could ever imagine. He says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Wait a second. He just said... Some of you will be put to death. And then he says, but not a hair of your head would perish. What in the world is he talking about there? Well, he's giving you the son of God's perspective on eternity. 
All right? In fact, in Luke 12, he's already given us a little bit of that. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. Jesus is giving us eternal perspective here. He is saying, you may die physically, but here he's talking about eternal life, ultimate reality, ultimate concerns. Not a hair on your head is going to perish. You may die, worst case scenario, but you won't. That's what he's saying. Why will they not die Because the Son of God in just a couple of days is going to conquer death. He's going to put death to death in the cross and the resurrection from the grave. And that's why they will not die. And I think this has many implications that impact all the irrational anxieties and fears we experience. Don't we have them? We all have them. Okay? And he's saying... If the worst thing that can happen to you, physical death, really isn't that ultimate, why do you fear? Why are you anxious about things? Why are you so concerned about human approval? Why are you so focused on creature comforts? There are people that will not go on mission trips across seas. Why? Because they may have to lay on the floor. Or they may have to eat foreign food. Or they may have to get in an airplane. And and, and Jesus is saying, I will be present. I will provide provision and presence. That's what this text is promising us. It's not to scare us. It is to sober us, but not to scare us. Jesus is teaching no matter what sufferings a believer may go through, the best things can't be injured. And then he closes, and we'll close here, verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Let me just say here, that word, uh, endurance, is used often. It means to abide under. What does it mean to endure? doesn't mean just to grit your teeth and flex your muscles. It means to persist in treasuring Christ, come what may. To persist in treasuring Christ, come what may. And he says, if you do that, you will gain your lives. If you turn from him when this happens, 1 John tells us you never really belong to him. But if you persist, you will gain your life. So that is a a word of comfort and it's a word of challenge. And however long that need to endure lasts, he gives us the promise of his presence. And in all this, Paul would tell us, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? All right. That's what he tells us. He did not spare his own son, but delivered us up for us all. How much more will he freely in Christ give us all things? What shall we say to these things? Who shall condemn us? It is God who justifies us. Christ was raised from the dead and he makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, sword or peril shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. For we are counted as all day long sheep for the slaughter. But we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling us here. Don't be fearful. He says that. Be not terrified. Be sobered, but also trust. Trust my presence. Trust my provision. 
And perhaps the, the greatest illustration of that provision is the Lord's table. Uh, the Lord's table reminds us of His presence. It reminds us of His provision. And that's what we want to celebrate for a moment. For those of you that are visiting with us 